Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Caitlin Thompson, and Caitlin is the creator and publisher of Racket Magazine, and she is the co-host of Racket Magazine podcast. And you're thinking to yourself, why is somebody who created and published a magazine about tennis and hosts a tennis podcast coming on Explore the Space? It's not just that tennis is my sport and it's near and dear to my heart. Caitlin is really emerging as someone who is doing important and excellent work in two major ways. And this is what we got into in this episode that was so interesting and so much fun. Number one, it's taking something that needs to be refreshed and be elevated. And she's doing exactly that with the wonderful sport of tennis by reframing the narrative, by bringing out new voices, by bringing forward new ideas. And it's just bringing the sport out in this incredible way. And then the second thing that she does is she is unsparing in looking at the issues that the sport faces and poking holes and pressing on specific challenges that it faces. And that's the same work that we're doing in healthcare. And it's the same work that we're doing specifically around gender bias. And we get into a really, really interesting conversation as she lays out the challenges that she sees and the leadership approach that she takes. It's this amazing mathematic where you can just pull out the word tennis and put in the word healthcare pull out the word tennis and put in any other operant term you want. It's the same work. And it's just, it's the most compelling stuff. She was just incredible to speak with. And she left me with so much to think about. And I think you're going to find the exact same thing. You can find her on social media. She is very active on Twitter at Caitlin, C-A-I-T-L-I-N underscore Tomps, T-H-O-M-P-S. You can find Racket Magazine on Twitter as well. R-A-C-Q-E-T-M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E. And they're also on Instagram at Racket Mag and at underscore Caitlin underscore Thompson. Highly recommend following both. The podcast is amazing. There's links in the show notes. The most recent episode with Billie Jean King with Caitlin and her co-host Renee Stubbs is just superb. And we talk about that one a little bit as well. You can also find Explore the Space on social media. We're on Twitter at ETS Show. And we're now on Instagram, Explore the Space Show. And you can also find the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can email me anytime. You can find Explore the Space on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Please subscribe wherever you like to find podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a review. Really helps the show out. This is a fun one. You know, we get to go in a lot of different directions on this podcast, and this is a really special one for me. We get to get into some tennis, but really we get to figure out that there are the same people doing the same work. Leadership is leadership. There's no need for silos. We can draw out lessons from people from all across the spectrum, and this is a perfect example. So without further ado, Caitlin Thompson. Caitlin, this is a total thrill for me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you're very welcome. Happy to be here. So you have walked, when I think about paths not traveled, uh, I, I look at your work and I look at your arc of your career as I've learned about you. You played tennis at a very high level in college. You became a journalist, and now you've started Racket Magazine, which is this extraordinary publication, which for me at least has completely reinvented the way I look at the sport that I love. And you've created a podcast, which would have hopefully been where I'd have ended up anyways, Racket Podcast, that you mm-hmm. now co-host with Renee Stubbs, who used to play on the tour professionally. And you are 
reframing in a lot of ways through that work, how we look at the sport, but also how we look at where tennis fits in with our society, how our society fits in with sports. It's been an incredible evolution. It feels like it's happening fast. Is that a fair characterization? Does it feel fast from the inside? Certainly. Um, But thank you obviously for, you know, the compliments. I appreciate your insight into how those sort of puzzle pieces fit together. Um, You know, I think for me, part of founding the magazine and part of my sort of story within tennis is that I got a scholarship to play tennis in school. And like a lot of athletes, especially tennis players who end up in college, uh, it's that you're there because you haven't been on the path towards the pros. So there's already sort of a reckoning with, okay, how do I want this to fit into my life? What can I give the game? What can the game give me? And, you know, I was very, very lucky to be able to get a full scholarship. And I chose um, the school based on what I wanted to study. And so I went to the University of Missouri, which had a good journalism program because I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And so those years studying to become a journalist and, and making the sort of beginning shape of my career happened in within the context of tennis. And so for me, graduating from school and, and going into a more, you know, I did political journalism for a while, I did dig- digital journalism and audio. Um, coming back to tennis was really a privilege. And we, and my partner David and I, who founded the magazine a couple of years ago, were both sort of general interest journalists who were really, really excited about and felt like there was a big opportunity to reframe tennis, um, not because there weren't individually great pieces of journalism being created about the sport, films or podcasts or pieces in, in various publications, but because we felt like we could create a platform to pull them all together. And, you know, it's somewhat about what we want to say about the sport, but it's a lot about what we felt like people were saying in separate spheres and being able to bring them together under sort of one banner with the idea that we would make it a larger cultural conversation. And really it used to be. And so for us, it's, it's less of a, it's less of an invention than more of a reinvention. And we see that as the opportunity to sort of bring the sport back to the cultural relevance that we felt like it had in the seventies and eighties when it sort of permeated a larger conversation. We want to have that larger conversation and, and that's why we're doing the work that we're doing. As, as I'm listening to you say that I'm absolutely beaming because what you're describing is I was just talking about, right? The path's not traveled that we we're, we're walking a similar path because there's so many of us in healthcare that want to do that exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Take that, that strategic view, take that informed, you know, historical background and say, how can we bring, bring us all together under one umbrella? How can we cross pollinate? How can we be better informed? How can we be better educated? And then how can we really elevate this thing that we love to get it to a place where we all feel good about it, where it feels inclusive, where it mm-hmm. feels engaging and where, where it's just great. Yeah. And I think that's, you have to be deliberate about that. I mean, yeah. I think you have to, I think have a small modicum of talent. Um, I would say in our cases, it's more sort of manifested in the vision uh, then, you know, David and I occasionally contribute to the magazine and, and some of the work ourselves, but more than anything else, it's more the vision to sort of, have that inclusive idea, have the idea of bringing a larger worldview. And if you look at, you know, my, my context is media, because like I said, that's been my career, not specifically sport media, mm-hmm. with the exception of the last few years. And so if you look at the best writers, the best documentarians, the best illustrators, photographers, artists, what they're really doing is engaging on this higher level and bringing in all of these other contexts, whether it's philosophical or historical or, 
or, you know, relevant cultural sort of contemporary ideas. So this is happening, I think, across many, many, many subjects, but I think it takes a deliberate effort and a really strongly articulated um, sort of container to, to, to pull it together and, and broadcast it in a way that makes it bigger than the sum of its parts. And so that's certainly our ambition. And that's what we think about when we think about how to build what we're building, which essentially is not just a magazine, it's a media company. And in our case, it's designed to sort of reinvigorate, reinvent, um, rebrand, refresh the conversation around tennis. But tennis is just really a lens for us to sort of tackle larger issues. And because it's a global sport, because it's it, it involves so much individual psychology and, and because it's you know played in so many different ways in so many different parts of the world by so many different kinds of people, it felt like such a good catch-all to be able to sort of you know, springboard in, into whatever particular subject that we find most interesting um, and then, you know, collect them in, in whatever format that might take. So usually it's a magazine, but increasingly it's film and TV, you know, podcasts, as you mentioned, and and for and maybe it's even creative campaigns with companies in the tennis space who want to sort of invite more people into it. We see it as all part of a whole, not just, you know, little piecemeal things here and there, we can pull, sort of pull it together, I think, in a way that, that hopefully amplifies it and, and stays on mission. Mission is something we talk a lot about, um, and, and that's why. What I would like to present to you is that that discussion of your mission, you could take the word tennis out, and you could substitute back almost anything else and say, this is a growth mindset. This is yeah. how you implement change. So for me... When I said, I'm going to email Caitlin Thompson, she's created this magazine that I love around the sport that I love and I have a very complicated relationship with, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but I hear you say that and, I, and I'm thinking to myself, I could substitute in practice of medicine. I could substitute yeah. in leadership. I could substitute right. in relationships. It's this idea of saying, we don't have silos. We don't want to have walls between us. We want to say, you look like you're doing something really interesting. I want to connect yeah. with you. When you got an email from this person that you'd never met, heard of, and said, hey, I host this podcast that they related to healthcare. Do you want to come on? You didn't just blow it off. You replied really quickly. Like, yeah, this sounds great. Is that part of that same work of like, absolutely. Let's just, let's see where we can find connection. Completely right. I think for me, being a journalist is sort of embedded into my DNA because I think what I'm seeking personally, and I think this telegraphs into the larger sort of body of work is, is connection is authentic yeah. human experience and sort of an examined understanding of how to, I don't want to say improve or like, but maybe like find the core humanity of, of how we're living and, and what we're doing and finding purpose in that and finding, you know, a way hopefully to say positively affect change. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, you could take literally any topic under the sun and sort of look at it and say, okay, we are probably not where we want to be. We're probably not as community oriented or as supportive or as, um, you know, thoughtful or inclusive or whatever it is, um, as we could be. And so I really applaud anybody who's trying to make those larger connections in service of that. Um, and for me, as long as that's the intention, like we can find connection somewhere, certainly. And I think the fact that you have a, 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 a show rooted in conversations about healthcare and, and the practice of, making people's lives better doesn't seem at all far away from what we're trying to do, even though our lenses are a little bit different. So it's not a, I don't tend to blow off a lot of emails usually, but yeah. <laughs> the, the only one, the only ones that feel less exciting are the ones that 
sort of come with a predisposed sort of statement of like, oh, you know, why can we talk? We get a lot of story pitches about like, oh, let's talk about Shutter and why he's the greatest tennis player of all time. I don't see a whole lot of new ground to be broken or new connections yeah. to be made yeah. in in amplifying that kind of message. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, right? And so you you can have that conversation in a lot of different venues. How can we do something a little bit different and a little bit more beyond? Like, I'm more interested in Roger Federer as a humanitarian, or Roger Federer as somebody who transverses cultures multilingually and has transcended the sport and what he's doing with that more than just what he's doing on a tennis court. It's related, but it's not, the other elements are a little bit more interesting to me because he's chosen to use this great skill and talent to sort of dabble in the worlds of fashion and certainly in the worlds of, of humanitarian intervention, yep. charity work. Like that's, that's to me a little bit more interesting because it indicates who he is as a human being, not just who he is as an athlete. I'll share my favorite Roger Federer story with you just quickly. We were at the BNP Paribas years ago. First time we'd gone, my wife and I were there. We were having a blast. And uh, we're at the practice court and there's a huge crush of people to get autographs. And we ended up being right near the front. And so Roger comes along and he's signing for everybody. And I had my ticket stub and he was going to sign it. And as he walked over to me, somebody kind of banged into me from behind because it's a real crush of people. And I dropped it and the wind picked up and blew it like 10 feet away. And he stopped and he looked at me and I said, Roger, I just dropped my ticket stub. Would you mind getting it for me? And he said, oh, sure, no problem. He turned around, (laughs) he walked halfway down the court, picked it up, brought it back, signed it for me, and he moved on. So that's That's my Roger Federer story. That's a pretty good one. I mean, I think think the players I most admire and the players who I, you know, have had the privilege to connect with are the people who realize that their engagement with the people who love this sport and the people who come and support them uh, is, is really what it's all about because you can play the most beautiful game of tennis and if nobody's there to watch it or appreciate it or understand it, you know, what's the point? So (laughs) I think that that's, that, you know, some of the better, I think some of the better ambassadors for the game, whether they're a 20 time grand slam champion, like he is, or somebody who's sitting, willing to sit down and make time and, and sign balls for little kids or go and do clinics. Like, you know, Nick Kyrgios is a good example. He's sort of famously in a sort of shifting wind scenario with his mindset when he goes out on the court. But he, behind the scenes, is the first guy to show up to the kids' clinic, the the longest yeah. one to sit and sign jerseys. And so that, to me, says a lot more than, than what he might or might not do with a tennis racket. I, I agree with that, and I think it's that informing of just being a good part of society and being a good part of whatever community you're in that's so important And I want to just pick up on something that you said, though. You used the phrase just a moment ago, being an ambassador of the game. And one of the things that for me was really important for us to have a conversation around that I think connects the road that the professional sport of tennis, and I would argue a lot of professional sports, but and, and the road that healthcare are walking are around issues with gender discrimination and gender bias. And this has been something that I think tennis has been really fraught with. So when you said ambassador of the game, that that struck me because you posted an episode of your podcast a couple of days ago where you had the opportunity to sit down with Billie Jean King when we speak about ambassadors of the game. And the uh-huh. subject matter that you both dis- that you and Billie Jean King and Renee Stubbs discussed, it resonated. And it resonated with me because on Explore the Space, there have been a lot and on, you know, healthcare social media and in healthcare writing and all of these things there is a real specific relief now on how do we make things more inclusive? How do we make things equal? How do we get rid Mm -hmm. of the old way of doing things? Let's talk a little bit about where you see that road in tennis as it relates to any other industry. Just like before 
when you were talking about how you've created this new approach to to describing the sport of tennis that we said we can substitute in anything else mm-hmm. it's the same work for you how much of a mission is that and and wh- where are we it's interesting because tennis is such a good microcosm of that conversation yeah for a lot of really distinct reasons um number one it's the only sport truly where women can day in day out make something approximating the same salary as the men in a professional sports context you know you can look at olympic athletes soccer players cricket players you know you can go through the litany of sport and look at some successes and some some failures of leagues but truly Women, since the real founding of the WTA tour in the 70s by Billie Jean King and the original nine, was the sort of point of the spear in making a very mission-centric, concerted effort to say, we need to be able to sustain ourselves 12 months out of the year. We have to be able to advocate for ourselves. We have to be able to sort of uh, create and organize and activate our fan base and our larger sort of social clout and turn this into something that is real and sustaining, you know? And I think you look at part of that conversation that I was really interested to get into with her was about how she took that work. And then also by virtue of being such a sort of symbol and also somebody who goes beyond symbolism and does the work helped advocate for the U S women's national soccer team, um, created a lot of dialogue around the Olympics and, to me and help them create, you know, leagues and sort of a a larger sort of support network for women to have the ability to earn as much money. I hate that it comes down to money, but that's, you know, one of the sort of more consistent measures that we can apply to, to, to success. Right. And I think what she was then focused on and what she's then focused on now is, is making sure that work doesn't get lost, which is a constant threat given that the men's tour is frequently sort of, um, calling into question the benefits and the justification for equal pay. And we can get into sort of what makes that a specifically sort of ornery issue within the tennis context. But the larger context is we still don't have sustainable league, you know, sort of uh, payroll kind of sports where if you grow up as a little girl and you want to play softball, you can't really do it professionally. You can occasionally make an Olympic team and maybe play in a summer league. You can't really do that as a hockey player. You can't really do that as a soccer player. Not really. And so even if you're achieving and ascending to the highest heights of your sport, and so there's so much work still to be done. And I think that was sort of the point that she was making, which is you can't rest on your laurels. This tennis was out in front of everybody else and and brought a lot of other sports along in a way that is sort of easy to forget when you see people on Wheaties boxes. But the truth is (laughs) that work is incomplete. And I think she was the first to admit it and to talk about how People need people like me, people like you, people, uh, you know, the generation of athletes, but also society needs to to really codify that. And a lot of the way that I see that being both um, sort of legislated, but also in peril is with Title IX. Title IX is a really yeah. important and, and sort of personal element of, for me, uh, of the work that sort of represents what that means, which is, you know, prior to Title IX, women's sports in athletic settings did not receive equal funding after they, they, uh, they also didn't, uh, there still isn't parity in terms of spending in athletic sports um, between men and women. The goals of title nine mean that you either have to have the same amount of scholarships given to men and women in the collegiate context, or you have to be working towards parity, which is a very sort of malleable definition. 
And Title IX has actually now expanded to include campus assaults. And um, it's gone beyond sports in a way that's both good, because obviously women need protecting and uh, institutionally uh, being supported. But also, one law was never really intended to do all these things. And so it's a little frustrating to me that, you know, in this day and age, we're still retreading on some of the sort of promises we've made to women that they can be equal members of society. And obviously you can see the political context in which that's sort of being, you know, uh, argued about right now, which is really sort of like, oh God, I wish we were beyond this, but we're not. And so that's sort of the point of, of having a sort of mission centric publication. We, the way we try to, um, put our words into action is by having female contributors. We look, every masthead of the magazine has at least 40% women, which is not gender parity, certainly, but given the amount of pitches we get and the amount of people who want to write for us and the amount of people doing the writing, you know, it's, we're over-indexing for women in the sports context. And I want us to do even better. The same goes for people of color. Um, Part of what is smart business about that to me is if you wanted to make a media company and use voices that have already been so thoroughly heard within the conversation. Yeah. You can pick some really tried and true, you know, um, well-versed people to do that, but you can also end up having the same conversations over and over again with the same viewpoints over and over again. So part of what our mission is, is to reach beyond the traditional storytellers who get to tell stories about tennis. And if you go into a, a media center at any of the tournaments, you'll still see, um, very few people of color, very few women, very few people who haven't been essentially like tennis beat reporters week in, week out for years and years and years. That's not to denigrate the work they're doing, but it's not good enough. And to me, very purposefully reaching outside of that world to say, no, you can write about tennis. And then sometimes they say, well, you know, I don't know that much about tennis, but I love it. And I'm interested in this aspect of it. To, to us, that's good enough. We can bring any kind of tennis context that they might be missing, but having their larger lens particularly when it's nested within the experiences or perspective of a woman or people of color like that to me means that you're going to get de facto a larger conversation happening, you know, and that that's one way in which I think we try somewhat succeed and and are determined to keep expanding the sport so that it becomes a place where people can see themselves in it. And it's not just um, a bunch of old white men, which, you know, traditionally it has been. I was like thinking I need to sc- frantically take notes, but then I remembered <laughs> that I'm recording. Um, yeah. What I would submit it. to you is yet again, substitute tennis for anything else. Yeah. What you just said is you're so far ahead of where everybody else is right now. I can assure you right now that in the world of medical leadership, in the world of recruiting, in the world of promotion, in the world of act, we are scrambling to yeah. catch up with what you just described. Oh, yeah. and I mean, we look still... at our elected leadership. I yeah. mean, look at our like yeah. uh, business. Look at literally any facet of society, yeah. any facet of the world. We're over-indexed for people who look a certain way yeah. and way under-indexed for 51% of the population to start. You know what I mean? Like what would a, what would a, what would a media landscape look like? What would an yeah. academic landscape look like? What, a, what would a what would healthcare, healthcare look landscape like? look like if we had 51% of women That's right. being, being um, participating fully and not just in the lower levels or the sort of um, apprenticeship sort of places, which is usually where people go, oh, well, we're trying. We have more, right. you know, opportunity, you know, diversity scholarships or opportunity scholarships. Right. Um, I've done a lot of work in 
the various media companies I've worked for, usually because I'm gay, I'm just usually tapped to be like, oh, you're, you're going to be on a diversity committee. I was like, okay, well, here's, here's what, in my view, it takes to actually achieve that. You have to make visible positions of leadership and impactful, real institutional empowerment happen for people who are women and people of color. Otherwise, it doesn't matter. You can have, uh, I was working in public radio for a long time and, you know, their efforts to diversify in, in all of those ways that we're talking about are pretty, um, I don't want to say notable, but they're, they're pretty touted and it's still, you turn, you tune into the radio and who do you hear, right? Not, not a representative, uh, societal breakdown, certainly. And so there's still so much work to be done because even if a company can say, oh yeah, well, we've got a bunch of nurses who are women and people of color. Okay. That's not good enough. Are your hospital administrators, are your policymakers, are your lobbyists, are your, um, you know, are your leaders within the field or your CEOs, are they also representative of, of the community they serve? Can I answer if they're not, you're not doing better. Question? You're not doing good enough. Can I answer that question? Let's pretend it's not rhetorical. Can I answer that question? Absolutely. No. That's the answer to your question. No. Yeah. In healthcare? No. We're we're nowhere close. And right now we're still in that place of we can't get – and I say that as a white male. Yeah. Right? In some ways I'm representative of that. um, But we also recognize that it's really important that I'm in a position where I'm very fortunate that I get to be a part of healthcare leadership and I get to be Mm -hmm. a part of recruiting and promotion. This has to become part of the automatic work that it's just how do we – elevate and, and, and promote and build. I saw a great quote the other day that as you rise, you have to lift. And I just loved that idea. Yeah. And so that's for all of us to be doing. We also have to get out of our own way. And I think both of our, like our yeah. Venn diagram, our overlap, we had some good ones this weekend. You were talking about publications, right? <laughs> uh, an orthopedic surgeon who's a woman shares on social media that she submits something to a, a, a journal. She has a paper to publish and they replied back, uh, with their boilerplate that was addressed to dear gentlemen. Like we, we, we just, we, mm-hmm. we, <laughs> they probably hadn't, that probably hadn't been revised for some, some number of years. I would imagine sure. like, look, look, look into the work that you're doing and how does it project out into the world? The French open has a rain out. All of the semifinals get screwed up. The scheduling is a disaster. And instead of doing something really fun and innovative and saying, all right, we've got two women's semifinals to play. We've got two men's semifinals to play. We've got an eight-hour window. We're going to go on Facebook Live and Periscope and Instagram, and we're going to do a live draw of who gets what court at what time. And this is going to be great. And then Uh call it good and let people have some fun with it and recognize that every court has cameras and every court has TV they didn't do that. They said, all right, the men get center court as scheduled and the women get whatever else. I, we just, we, we've got they have to, get- to be, they have to accommodate the men's schedule. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a lightning rod moment Ugh. so that it got a lot of attention because it was such a high profile end of the tournament. But even yeah. if you just look at the day in day out, who's getting scheduled on which courts, oh, who yeah. are getting the prime broadcast windows. Yeah. I mean, look, you Google Roland Garros scores, the men, it defaults to the men. Yeah. Um, automatically you yeah. get those scores first and usually those aren't the scores I'm looking for. So every time I open an app that a grand slam puts out or every time <laughs> I go to Google a score or anytime yeah. I'm looking for news, the default is that I want to read about the men. And that's for me, not the case. Right. Imagine if it defaulted to the women, how many more people would you just catch based on, you know, sheer, you know, cost change. Oh, like, Oh, I have to go and look for the men's score. Cause the women's ones are getting automatically sent to me like that. Uh, part of it really is like 
dis- dissembling the sort of systematic stuff, the, the, the day in day out stuff that ends up either creating a good outcome, which is something you just described, which is making it totally transparent, totally open, or reinforcing the sort of rigidity of how, in this case, gender is sort of reinforced, right? And the secondary yeah. class status of women. And I think when I think a lot about lifting as we rise and making room and getting out of our own way, you know, one of the things I'm very conscious of being a white person who's relatively privileged is, you know, thinking back to my work on the diversity committee, I don't get to have all the jobs. I need to make room for other people to come in and take more. And that might come at a personal cost to me. I certainly think that that's the, the mindset of a lot of white males who are like, even the ones who want to be allies, like, oh, well, I made a little room beside me. Well, it's really going to be the test when you make a little room above you. Right. Yeah. And you and you and you can you're comfortable rising and bowing out of something because you're acknowledging that maybe your voice isn't needed at this moment. And I think in, in some of the ways that I see men being good allies and, and trying to really lift women alongside them just because we're having more of a gender conversation than a race conversation, although certainly it applies there, too, is, you know, realizing that uh, you, you there's a lot more listening that needs to happen and amplifying that doesn't involve a white men's perspective and, and the good allies I think are trying harder than most to, to make that happen. And when I think about tennis and how we keep, we're not getting out of our own way, I mean, the reckoning that we're ha- ha- having in society, even though I'd argue it's not going anywhere near as far and, and what the me too movement has sort of shed light on, not only in the entertainment industry, but also in the workplace, you know, this is all part of a sort of larger conversation that I think society is, is still very much struggling with in terms of how to give women somewhat close to an equal footing of men in, in society. That hasn't really hit the tennis world. And I don't know that it's hit other sports worlds because I'm not in those other sports conversations as much, but I would argue probably not. Um, but certainly not in tennis. The, the, the lack of the, what I see happening in media that I think is very good um, again, that's because media is my, my perspective is at least we're having the conversations and some media companies have been, whether by virtuousness or pressure, started talking about really um, mission centric and sort of very deliberate inclusivity. Tennis has not started that conversation. It's not started that work. And so thinking about how difficult it is to create um, a product, if you want to call women's tennis a product. Um, at all, like somewhat close to on equal footing as men, they're doing it without any kind of systematic or institutional sort of support or acknowledgement that it's twice as hard. You know, I think one of the things I think about a lot when, especially when you talk about people of color is the concept of being twice as good. You know, if somebody's going to make room for you, it's because you're twice as good as somebody else. Um, I don't think that's necessarily fair to, to apply one-to-one to the conversation we're having about gender, but it doesn't feel terribly off right like the yeah. women have to be always entertaining always amazing and then if there's a sort of boring semi-final because there's an overmatched you know opponent oh well why are the women getting paid as much that was a boring match well nobody's <laughs> talking about the fact that you know the men have rollovers more often than not and we're watching the same three people win all the slams you know that's not particularly exciting to me um so just having that conversation, having that awareness, hasn't really happened in tennis, and, yeah. and that's part of what I see our work as being, um, you know, responsible to do. The conversation of equal compensation, again, it's an easy substitution to move between women's professional tennis and the practice of medicine. The disparity across compensation and gender 
in healthcare is it's it's it is there and there are some really smart and really loud voices that are putting that into specific relief which is the right work because i don't care about you know who who's going to say one match is better than another you, you, these are arbitrary criteria if you're doing the work right. you're doing the work and the pay is the same and that's right. the end of the discussion and the places in tennis that have been smart to recognize that and call it good are really intelligent and they're way ahead there are places in healthcare that are way ahead and there are places mm-hmm. that aren't and right. that's that's a huge driver of change because you'll keep people engaged when there's basic fairness and that's a really easy place, again, in terms of looking at ways we can get out of our own way to just implement totally. basic fairness. Yeah, and I think when I think about the equal pay argument, and again, in a lot of tennis, there is uh, in tournaments somewhat cl- approximating equal pay for winners, but it's still not translating into the qualifiers. It's still not translating right. into the broadcast time. You right. know, so it's the beginning of work. But I also think, you know, in, in the context of what you were just talking about in terms of healthcare. You know, one thing that I think would help greatly, knowing what we know about women and how they negotiate for salaries, knowing what we know about men and how they negotiate for salaries and how they're hired and how they're seen, right? We hire men based on their potential. We hire women based on their experience. We pay men based on what they ask for and we pay women based on what they settle for, right? And I think for one easy start to that work, maybe not the be all and all solution is, okay, start at the top and say, Hey, every single company is going to make salaries completely transparent. And so you get a band of salaries based on your job description and you get uh, complete transparency in, in terms of who's making what, then all of a sudden you still don't necessarily address the hiring uh, discrepancy between women, men and women. And this has been proven time and time again, a woman's resume because it usually has a woman's name on it gets dismissed in the pile much more easily than a man's name. And so the same resumes with a man's name get farther along in the job hiring process, right? That That's not going to equal pay in terms of transparency of salary is not going to help that necessarily. But it's, again, it's a start to sort of bring light into the situation. And that's something that any company can do and say, okay, if you're a VP at our company, this is the base salary. Maybe we can indiv- reward individual performance based on, you know, factual structural bonuses. But again, that can't be at the discrepancy of sort of our inherent bias, which is what it ends up being. And so that that's one way I think that any industry in any part of the world can immediately take to sort of say, okay, we're going to make all of our salaries transparent. That's a place to start. And we're going to give parental leave to men and to women so that we can incentivize and encourage the idea of having people at home taking on equal or something approximating equal responsibility for the raising of a child. So it doesn't just become women dropping out of the workforce and men, you know, being offered two weeks and sometimes not even taking it because they feel like they, they're not incentivized and they'll be, they'll be punished for it. I think there's some systematic stuff that we can do that can start putting us on the road towards a a sort of better society. And in these contexts, I think you'll, you'll start having larger conversations. If you can just make some like real firm institutional sort of declarations, like, okay, we're going to, we're going to, do salary transparency, and we're going to give parental leave. That's a start. You, I will submit to you, Caitlin. You could take the stage at any grand rounds, any medical conference you want, and <laughs> you'd pack the room because oh, this is you. exactly <laughs> what we are dealing with and struggling with and trying to fix quickly right now in, yeah. in my profession. And I'll submit to you, it's hard work. And there is a certain amount of toughness that is required to do that. Where for you do you find the, 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 the metal, right? It's, it's just like getting through a third set tiebreaker. 
where you have to just be tough and you got to hang in there and be tired and be sore and gut it out and win. Where does that come from for you as someone who you've got, you're doing this magazine, you're building a media enterprise, but you're pushing something larger than that. I think that's pretty clear. Where does that, where does that metal come from? Well, I wish I could say it's based on some sort of like hardworking ethos or it's not the um, inner game of tennis, the the famous book. (laughs) I, I am, I am stubborn and I am, I have a very inherent distrust of authority. Um, (laughs) And so I would say it's a little bit more dispositional. And I think the one thing that I bring to it, and this is thanks to years and years of therapy. um, So shout out to your medical professionals who (laughs) made it a much safer and more productive place for me to do a lot of the work that I've tried to do on myself. I think part of it is just, you know, my inherent stubbornness of like, no, I see a better world. I can be a part of making it. And that's not because I'm virtuous. It's just because I don't want to settle for this world that we're, we've been given and that we, we feel like we're stuck with. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is just, you know, I, I cannot, I, I am somebody who, because I think of years of therapy, I'm really trying to be thoughtful and self-aware about my own abilities and shortcomings. And that, self-awareness has actually made me feel a lot um, more healthfully vulnerable. So I can say, okay, I'm not actually right in this situation or I can grow and learn. And I think that as a disposition actually makes you much, much stronger to be able to say, I'm going to tackle this new thing that I don't know anything about, or I'm going to breach, you know, forward and, and make a new pathway. It doesn't become a scary obstacle because I haven't done it before. It becomes an opportunity where I can say, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to try really hard. And then I'm going to encounter some stuff that I wasn't expecting. That's going to change my mind. And I'm going to be open to that mind change. And there's going to be some opportunities for me to be flexible or malleable or listen to what other people are saying and have that inform me. And I don't have to be right. And I don't have to be perfect, but I have to engage in it. And the engaging of it is actually going to be the pleasurable part of the work. And I think if you go into anything with that sort of context, it becomes an enjoyable sort of challenge because you understand where you're, where you're sort of fixed in the landscape of, of yourself and also the larger conversation. I don't mean to speak so metaphorically, but, you know, there's never been a situation where I thought, oh, can I do that? It's usually just like, why wouldn't I do that? I don't know. Like, I, I can think of maybe four or five discrete times in my career where people have asked me or told me, oh, but you don't know how to do that. You don't know how to start a magazine. You don't know how to play collegiate tennis you don't know how like okay well i'll figure it out i don't know i mean how hard could it be people are doing it people have done it before (laughs) were they born with the innate ability to practice medicine or to you know go on a lunar lander i don't know no people can figure it out but you have both i think a humility and a willingness to sort of both be confident and sort of change and adapt as the, as the obstacles come your way. And so to me, it's more of a question of why wouldn't I do that? I don't, I don't, I don't accept when people tell me that things can't be done, especially if I, if I'm hearing that I can't do them. Well now, believe me, you're going to see how it can be done. Um, because I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show you and I'm not going to do it out of spite or out of, you know, uh, grudge holding or bitterness, I'm going to do it because I, I feel like it'll be fun to do. And so I really do try to approach any, you know, my, my tennis matches, my work as a journalist, having conversations like this with you with like a spirit of like, there's got to be something to be sort of gained or experienced that I wouldn't have otherwise gained or experienced here. And if it's harder or more difficult or weirder than I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe that'll be part of the fun of the experience or, or at least give me some new fodder to chew on. Right. And I think, especially with women, just because of so much of our conversation is centered around gender, 
you know, not a lot of women are taught or told that they can are, are capable of doing that or even allowed to do that. And I just, luckily for me, I don't have that DNA where that resonated with me because I've always been like, oh no, that's your issue. That's you. If you don't think this can be done, it's because you don't think it could be done. You know, if you think that this is too hard or too new or too fast or too disruptive, then that's your lack of vision. That's your, that's your own hangups. And I'll show you that you can do it and then you can join me. People who listen to the show know that there's a couple things that I don't like. I don't like platitudes and I don't like admin speak. My only exception to not liking admin speak is I like the term growth mindset. And yeah. what you just laid out is exactly why I like that term. Because when, when I think of the term growth mindset, I think of what you just said. And I appreciate you putting that out there. You and I are nowhere near done. We're nowhere near done. Well, listen, have me back on anytime because I love, we didn't even get into my own, you know, I would love to, can I get some free therapy out of it? Like, let's, let's get, let's, <laughs> we can get wild and woolly. Next time. But <laughs> yes, this has been a very enjoyable conversation. So yeah. I really do appreciate it, Mark. At, this is a total treat. We're nowhere near done. And thank you so much for coming on the show. And we will, we will pick up where we left off. I'm sure. Fantastic. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.